Hello, my modern women. This is your host, Nicole Colantoni with Single at 30, the manual for the modern woman. It's knowing that love is out there, that having your needs met is possible, that that's what love is supposed to be, that love is not supposed to be hard. So I think we overlook those red flags. A lot of the times, I mean, simply put, we are still operating from that wounded inner child. We're still looking to receive or get or earn or make work what didn't work when we were younger. And so it's like that validation where if I can get love from this person, then that means I'm worthy of love. Instead of recognizing we are worthy to be loved and the right person is going to do that without us having to bend over backwards. Hello to all my modern women. I could not be more excited to introduce to you today our latest guest. I obviously love and admire each person that I interview, but this is a total pinch me moment because not only is she the author of one of my favorite books, You Only Fall In Love Three Times, she is also a total idol of mine when it comes to illustrating the complexities of relationships and the lessons that await us when it comes to life and love. It is an understatement when I say I could literally listen to her talk all day, which is why this app is longer than usual. Even after having read her book front to back in a matter of days, I found myself learning something new and profound with every word she spoke throughout this interview. So my advice to you is get out your pen and pad or laptop or whatever it is that you make notes with and make sure to write down her words of wisdom because they are plentiful and priceless. Guys, I thought I knew myself and my past relationships pretty well until I spoke with our guest today and our insights ever so gently reminded me that understanding yourself is a lifelong journey and that journey is made all the more easier with modern women just like her. This episode, Why You Only Fall In Love Three Times, will help you on your path whether you are single, in a relationship, or even going through heartbreak. Please share it with the women in your life because they too are bound to find it useful when it comes to understanding not only their past relationships and why they keep attracting the same type of love into their lives, but why every relationship in their life has taken place to teach them something that they need to learn about themselves and what makes them truly happy, as well as the reasons behind the three three types of different love most of us all experience in one form or another throughout our lifetimes. And my absolute favorite, what the key to finding and recognizing the one they're truly meant to be with is. And for those of you that have ever felt like there is something wrong with you because you haven't found your forever person yet, this episode will challenge your beliefs while also helping you to embody and attract the love you want. Guys, I am so excited to introduce to you today the magnificent relationship expert and author, Kate Rose. Kate, welcome to Single at 30, the manual for the modern woman. Ah, thank you so much, Nicole. It's truly a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So let's start from the beginning. Tell me about your personal and professional backgrounds and how it led you to write You Only Fall in Love Three Times. I had started off, I had a very kind of all over the place career path. Um, Always wanted to be a writer, but didn't actually pursue writing itself. Um, I went to school to be an art therapist, received my master's degree, started working with people in that sense, um, just because I like the medium and I found people were to be very honest when their hands were busy um, and just the healing capacity of it. And then, you know, life struck me and I had realized that my marriage that I was in was incredibly unhealthy and that I, which meant was unhealthy, even though I didn't feel like I was, if I attracted it and I was in it, that meant it what it was. And so through my own process of, you know, going through divorce and separation and figuring out who I was after being in this relationship since I was 18 and, you know, having high school sweethearts come back and having new loves come in, it was like, 
what does all of this mean? And so I started writing on Elephant Journal um, and it happened very quickly. I woke up one morning and had a couple ideas for articles in my head and they were written and published by noon that day. And that was the first time. And then over 500 articles later on Elephant Journal, I had a gentleman who's actually a published author himself approach me and want to talk with me about doing a book. And it was all because of him that I kind of first started thinking about the idea. He's the one that hooked me up with his book agent. Um, and at that point, I, I had never gone to school or thought that I would specialize in love and relationships, but it's a path. I believe that we are guided on the paths that we were meant to. And so, you know, a lot of what the three loves is, is things that I have experienced myself and working with people and having those conversations. You know, I remember it was literally a November night here in, you know, cold New England. I had just given my girls dinner. I was on the couch and I was like, oh my God, we all have three loves. <laughs> it's like, I started thinking about everyone that I had worked with and talked with. And it was like, oh my gosh, like we all have. And then that's where the original just Facebook post was born. I was on the couch after dinner, my, you know, girls were all laying on me and I wrote it out. And then that's what became the book a couple of years later. So I've read your book and I absolutely love it. I read it front to back in like the space of like a few days, but for those who haven't read it, how do you define the difference between a soulmate, a karmic partner and a twin flame? So there's lots of renditions out there, but from my experience in working with people, that soulmate person that we have in our lives is generally a relationship that feels good. We can have it at any age, but it usually tends to be when we are at a lower maturity level, when it's something that just fits good, it feels good, but we're not really growing within the relationship. We're not striving to new levels. We're, we're more focused maybe on conforming or doing what we think we should do, which is why it oftentimes is one of the first relationships um, the soulmate purpose, it's to come in and kind of introduce us to love, kind of wet our feet in the relationships in a, a very nice way. Most of us will always kind of be friends with our soulmate. We'll always have a, a soft spot or reconnect at difficult times in our life. But ultimately, we're not able to really grow into the people that we're meant to if we stay in that relationship. The karmic relationship is the one that seems like it's the end all be all <laughs> before we really know what it's all about. Um, it's exciting. It feels like it's magical. It, it hits on all of these parts of ourselves that we haven't looked at. Meanwhile, not knowing that the karmic relationship is usually what our inner wounded child seeks because we didn't receive it as children, but it feels very addictive. The sex is usually fantastic in karmic relationships. It's usually has this up and down roller coaster pattern. So it attracts us and it addicts us and we don't know what we're going to get. Um, but ultimately, the karmic relationship purpose is to have us deal with ourselves, to have us learn how to heal our own inner child, to have us learn, oh, my God, I might have codependency. I might have anxious attachment. I might have all of this stuff going on and then kind of directing us to look at it. And our twin flame, nobody's perfect. We're never going to reach this ultimate state of being completely healed. But our twin flame is someone who's like, hey, I'm on that journey too. And we talk about how we grow together. That's when we start talking about what is a conscious relationship? What is conscious love? How do we have transparency? How do we speak our needs? Because previously as a soulmate, we didn't even know we had needs. We were just in love and in a relationship. In our karmic relationship, it was withheld or this given back and take. So we kind of became addicted to the on again, off again. In our twin flame, it's really this based in, Let's have a healthy, mature, conscious relationship 
And we're not perfect every day. We're going to fight. We're going to challenge and trigger each other, but we're still going to choose to show up for one another. And that really ends up being our forever love. But it's impossible to learn how to be in our forever love without the other relationships as well. Absolutely. Just listening to you, I feel so seen because all of those relationships <laughs> apply to my life. It's crazy. It is. I mean, and even I, I spoke with a woman just before I jumped on with you today and I said, promise me you'll be aware of your self-talk. You are not crazy. <laughs> and that was one of the things I just said to her because we're when we're in this cycle and we're thinking about things and when we're relating things, we feel like we're crazy. Nothing makes sense. We don't understand, especially the karmic one is really hard because we don't understand how it can feel so great but still not really be satisfying our needs, but yet we're not able to walk away, but yet it doesn't really feel that good to stay. So (laughs) there's a lot. And then with our twin flame, it's like, how do I do this? I mean, there's so many people when they get to that space of receiving that healthy reciprocal love, automatically what we actually want to do is bolt. It's like, I don't know what this is. I'm used to not having my needs met. I'm used to you playing games and now you're holding me accountable and you're meeting needs that I haven't even asked for. And so that's always, that's actually one of my favorite parts of talking with people is when they're in that amazing, healthy beginning of that, that really good relationship. And they're starting to throw up all sorts of walls and they want to tie their running shoes on. And I had actually a woman from Australia. I was speaking with her when she was just beginning hers. And as only Australian men can do, he picked her up for one of their first dates in a boat with a picnic. And I said, and she's like, I can't believe it. I, I think I should end it. I was like, are you, are you actually hearing yourself? <laughs> the man picks you up in a boat. I don't think he's looking for a one night. I don't, I don't think this is a, a flimsy little relationship, but it's amazing how once we reach that point, that challenges us. So where the soulmate challenged us because we didn't grow, the karmic challenges out of all the pain, the twin flame actually challenges out of all the goodness, out of how good it feels, how much we're receiving. I actually read Stephen Bartlett say the most challenging relationship is the healthy one after the toxic one. And that is 110% right because we, during that toxic one, which usually it's not a short-lived relationship, even if it's off and on and there's you know not a lot of like consistent time, it ends up being where we just become so conditioned that this is love, which often relates to how we were loved or what we experienced somewhere in childhood. And so then moving into this healthy relationship, not only does it challenge the cycle of love that we had believed had to exist, but it also challenges what we had received. And so understanding that and you're, we're at a point of healing, but again, it's not, it's not something that's perfect. It's not something that's always consistent. And so we get triggered in that twin flame relationship and we want to run and we, we get, you know, by having it be so healthy, by having someone say, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. That actually can be one of the most triggering things because many of us are used to being left. So why do some people meet the love of their life first time round while others experience all three loves or sometimes none at all? A lot of it has to come down to what we've been through previously as children and young adults. I mean, if we are in that space, again, and kind of where our soul path is headed, I think it's a combination of two. Um, I think a lot of what we go through in our early childhood really does end up shaping what we think love and relationships is. And if we didn't receive what we needed, or if there was a lot of that avoidant attachment style, then we can kind of grow up and be avoiding it ourselves. You know, most, I've never spoken with somebody who says they don't want a relationship. They don't want someone to be there for them at the end of the day, but there's a difference between wanting it and knowing how to be open to it. 
the whole aspect of, I certainly believe that sometimes we do end up meeting that one amazing love and we were meant to meet them and have it be just that one time and stay together. But I've also talked with numerous people and they, they married that person and stayed married for different reasons, whether it was for the children, whether it was because they didn't want to have to start all over again for family reasons, you know, even talking with my, my old grandmother, who's, you know, in her nineties at this point, when I was writing this book, she's like, she's like, people weren't happy if they were married to one person all the time. She's like, I know couples who had cots in the garages and who had other friends on the side. And she's like, it's just, we didn't talk about it. She's like, you guys talk about it and get divorced. (laughs) So I think there is that a little bit of a difference. And, you know, it's very rare to meet somebody, let's say in our early twenties or even mid twenties that we're going to be able to grow with through the multiple phases of our lives. So it can happen. I think that it has to do with what kind of childhood you received. I think it has to do with what your sole purpose is in this life as far as what you're meant to experience. But sometimes we also have to ask ourselves, you know, is there is there a fear that's preventing us from moving forward if we do have that one marriage, one relationship? It's so true. When I think back to who I was in my early 20s, I was not ready to grow with someone for the rest of my life. I got married in my mid twenties. I'm like, my God, I was a baby. I didn't know anything about anything. (laughs) Totally. And I'm about to turn 33 next week. And the person I was at 30 is a completely different person to who I am now. So I feel like the biggest challenge in life is really finding somebody who can do life with us for the rest of our lives. Exactly. And I mean, there really is, you know, every year changes, every decade is different. But I feel like there is a very magical difference between 29 and 30. And it's something, something just clicks in place. We have a different awareness about ourselves, about life, about, I mean, when we're 25, most of us aren't even aware of meeting somebody that we can grow with. We're looking at jobs, family. Do you want to have kids? Do you want to get married? Oh, great. You know, let's do this thing together. Whereas now, if we're meeting somebody in our early 30s, now we're having these questions, you know, from... I I have two daughters, they're 14 and 10. And I tell them, I said, no matter how much you love somebody, just wait until you're 30 to get married because everything changes when you turn 30. I said, just wait, just wait until you're 30 because it is, it's a completely different experience. Just like our twenties are so different than our teens. I think from our thirties and on, we grow and we change and we're different, but we at least have the idea and the kind of that understanding that we're going to continue changing, which I think before then we don't really understand. In our 20s, we think we know everything. Let's be honest. I do, and I did. I really thought that I knew everything. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's so funny to look back and I'm like, well, you know, we all needed to go through it and learn it. But no, we have, we think we reached adulthood. We have jobs. We went to college or university. And, you know, now we're adults. Now there's nothing more to learn. Exactly. That's the case. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. But it's so funny that you say that because my dad has always said the same thing. He's like, whatever you do, don't make any serious life decisions before the age of 30. Yeah, now I didn't, ha- I didn't have that advice. And, you know, I followed the path and I did all the things. And, you know, by all means, I encourage my daughters, obviously, to be the free wild spears that they are. But I'm like, just if you can just wait, just even if it's 30 for a day, just wait a little bit, because a lot does change. You know, there's just that awareness and realization that comes in. And it's there's also that kind of evidence where marrying in your 30s kind of ends up lasting longer than if you get married in your 20s. You have a little bit more awareness to move through. 
So with my soulmate, it was honestly love at first sight, as if two souls were recognizing one another. Do you believe in love at first sight? I absolutely do because we just, it's that soul recognition. It's being like, oh my God, you're part of my soul family. I know you. And we don't know what that love means. And so a lot of times we'll romanticize it. We'll think that we're meant to be together forever and all of these things. But I absolutely believe in love and first sight because, you know, my personal belief is that our souls are here multiple lifetimes before this one, and they'll be here multiple lifetimes after. So there are those connections. And especially as we get older, that we have with people that there's no explanation for. There's no rationale. There's no time. It's just an an immediate connection. And that's just, I think, our soul recognizing another soul that was important to us, that is important to us. It's so true because I was very young when I met my soul partner and he was in the pool, but on the other side of the pool, we were on a family holiday and it was like I was punched in the face. There was no explanation for it. But the second I laid eyes on him, it was like, I just knew that we were going to be together, you know? And how do you explain that? And when you can't, right? No, I mean, and I had almost verbatim the same experience with my ex-husband. It was, I was on vacation with my, you know, holiday with my family, you know, up in Northern Maine. And we just simply like we're walking down this alley where all the games were closing. It was a pier and boardwalk. And I just saw him and we just walked directly towards each other, just directly toward you. And two seconds before my cousins are like, why are we walking down here? Everything is closed. And I just walked right towards him. And from that moment on, there was just that connection. And I think in our case, it was because we had agreed to teach each other, teach each other some lessons in this lifetime, even if they were not the most fun. So we had needed to meet, but it was that instant recognition. Absolutely. But it's so easily, it is so easy to confuse that person with your forever person. Yeah. And it's magnetic and it's exciting and it's wonderful. And so it's very hard. But I I think when we kind of, one, look at the idea that the relationships are a vehicle for self-growth, we're going to attract whatever relationship we currently need in order to be able to elevate to that next level of ourselves, to learn the lessons And that we are going to meet people that we've either agreed to work through lessons with in this lifetime or that we know from previous ones. So ultimately, and that's why as much as I think it's beneficial to have this idea of relationships, the one thing that can be detrimental is labeling the relationship before it's had that time to really kind of be worked through. Because any relationship in its honeymoon phase, we could dub soulmate or twin flame or, oh, it's so wonderful and sweet. Well, let's give it five years in or so. Let's see how we fight, how we argue, what kind of growth there is, what toxicity we've brought out within each other. And that's really because ultimately we can label something as a soulmate or something twin flame or something wonderful, but in the long run, it doesn't mean its purpose is actually to live up to that. And so a lot of it is just being able to accept, yes, we fell in love instantly. Yes, we had this soul connection, but ultimately that was not the path that the relationship went. And if it was supposed to be different, it would have been. Absolutely. So the relationship with my karmic partner ticked a lot of boxes. And from the outside, it looked like the perfect relationship, right? But Mm -hmm. I felt lonely within the relationship and deep down knew they weren't the one for me. And yet I overlooked so many of the red flags, including when he (laughs) cheated on me. And I know you touched on this before, but why do you think we choose partners and fight for relationships that we know are wrong for us? When we're in that sense, especially the karmic relationship, I mean, we are still operating from that sense of lack. We're still thinking that love needs to be hard. We're still thinking that we need to work and earn 
that love and approval and affection from people. And there's also a lot of gratification that comes from, and same, I mean, very again, similar experience. My ex-husband cheated on me. And then I was the one somehow making him feel better about it. Um, So (laughs) there's that situation where, you know, we want to help people. We want to help people become better. Of course, we're neglecting that happening for ourselves and our own needs. And that's why a lot of times you can't really get to that space of knowing that you're worthy and deserving, living in from that state of abundance. And that's not financial abundance, although, of course, that's included. It's knowing that love is out there, that having your needs met is possible, that that's what love is supposed to be, that love is not supposed to be hard. So I think we overlook those red flags a lot of the times. I mean, simply put, we are still operating from that wounded inner child, we're still looking to receive or get or earn or make work what didn't work when we were younger. And so it's like that validation where if I can get love from this person, then that means I'm worthy of love. Instead of recognizing we are worthy to be loved and the right person is going to do that without us having to bend over backwards. It's so true because even if they like going back to those childhood wounds, often during the hard times in the karmic relationship, it will remind us of the hard times in our childhood. So we, in a sense, we, it's confirming that pain for us and like almost confirming that like this, we are deserving of that pain. You know, we can't differentiate between what's right for us, what's not right for us, what we deserve and what we don't deserve. No, logically speaking, when we are in our karmic relationship, we're not really thinking and operating from our healthy adult healed selves. We're working through and operating things from, you know, our wounded inner child who hasn't yet learned that. So it's definitely a very different, a very different point of relating. And it's, you know, even a lot of times we judge ourselves for being in those relationships, but in reality, it's our wounded child that was in that relationship. And that's why for most of us, I like to say most, although I've never encountered one of us who hasn't done it, but most of us, our karmic partner will have some sort of similarity, quality, or principle to what was happening in our childhood at the time. And it doesn't have to be gender specific. I mean, there's a lot of women that I've talked to that actually married or were with men who were more like the mother than the father. So it's not necessarily, it's whatever, wherever that aspect was of lack that was created, a lack of attention, a lack of worthiness, a lack of love, wherever that was, that's usually the parent that we're going to replicate the karmic relationship after. Absolutely. So the relationship with my karmic love also felt like a drug to the point where I would go mad if I didn't get my hit. And I know you mentioned oh, Yeah, we're going to go, we're going to be without it. We're going to die without this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And when the relationship ended, I just like, I honestly did not think that I was ever going to get through it. I thought that that was going to be the death of me. What advice do you have for women who are struggling with their own breakup? If you're at that point of feeling like your life is going to end and that you are absolutely addicted, you don't see how you can survive without the person, those feelings are telling you that whatever you're missing out on, it's literally giving you a roadmap of what you need to give yourself. And it's not easy and it's not an instant answer. And no one wants to hear that you shouldn't date right now. Don't be on dating apps, no friends with benefits. But unfortunately, that's the only way that you're going to be able to give yourself that Because when we have that karmic aspect, when we have that addiction, yes, maybe it's just exciting, even if it's unhealthy, but why are we craving the excitement of something that's very inconsistent? Are we craving our own consistency? Do we need to actually plan and do things for ourselves that feel fun and exciting rather than that? And if it's that aspect of love, a lot of it comes down to that attachment. You know, if we are 
more anxious or more anxious, fearful, we're going to be more prone to feel like life is over when someone leaves. When in reality, that's kind of pointing us towards ourselves to become more secure with who we are. What do we offer ourselves? And I had written a one of my most favorite articles, is, you know, for Elephant Journal years ago. It's whatever I'll just date myself, and that was actually a phase that I felt like I went through. And it's like, wait a minute, like why am I waiting for some guy to do all of these amazing things with me when I can do that with me? And that's part of really doing that. And it's there is no easy cure if you feel like you are doing it, but ultimately, and this was literally an analogy I, I said to the woman earlier, is the equivalent is someone who's addicted to say cocaine, you're not going to get better by continuing to take cocaine. So unfortunately, if we feel addicted, because when you, we think that that's the best that love could ever be, but once we heal and we realize, you know, when we get that healthy love and we start to feel more secure within ourselves, we'll realize that yes, we loved them. We cared about them, but it was probably more attachment than it was actually love because love is consistent. Love doesn't hurt. Love doesn't make you sacrifice your needs. So if we're in that space where we're feeling that, it's really showing us where we need to fill up our own cup. And it does take time. And anybody saying or kind of bargaining a quick fix, it's not going to work. And while it can be fun, getting under somebody else to get over somebody, that definitely doesn't work. (laughs) I actually took five years off um, from dating after that breakup because I I had the same level of insight and recognized that I was attached and not in love. And that the reason I was struggling with the heartbreak was because I was looking outside of myself to give what, to find what I needed instead of providing that for myself. I was looking to somebody else to give that to me rather than looking within myself. And I did the same in my journey. I even did one, it was one full, I had done it a couple of times, but the first time I had done one full year of shows and I'm going to be abstinent, no sex, no kissing, no getting that validation on what I look like from a man. There was going to be nothing but me and myself. (laughs) It was not easy. (laughs) It was not easy because it's so easy if we're feeling low to have someone else feel our cup. If we're not feeling attractive or loved or worthy, flirting can feel really good. But it's like the equivalent of if we're starving and hungry, we can go to kind of the quick little store and get some junk food and it might fill us up temporarily, but it's not nourishing us. It's not good for us. And it's going to not last very long. Exactly. It's so confronting to really, you know, look within yourself and like figure out the answers as to why you're feeling this way. Why are you afraid? Why is this so painful? But it's so necessary. Otherwise we just continue to carry that baggage into each one of our relationships. And I also took a couple of years off from um, sex and, you know, like, you know, um, proactively dating and going out there and kissing whoever came by. And it was, it was really refreshing. And just, you know, like you said, I dated myself and it was so necessary to fall in love with myself during that period before I tried. Yeah. As long as we're, you know, as long as we're even doing dating apps or anything like that, we're not really focusing on ourselves. We're still saying that we need somebody else to give us that feeling. And it's, it's easy, you know, especially nowadays, it's super easy to open up the apps on a whim and kind of browse through and look. But if we've been through that horrible breakup, we don't need somebody else to come in and save us. And I think that's a really important piece too, is that I'll be the first one to admit at one point in my journey, I could, I wanted nothing more than a man to sweep in and save me financially, emotionally, mentally, just save me and protect me. But in that, we also lose a lot of our own power. And we don't really realize that 
we don't actually need someone to save us. We can have someone walk with us on our journey. We can have someone be there for us if we're not strong enough to walk for a day. But ultimately, the only person who can save ourselves is us. And that is by developing that self-love, by developing that sense of inner security. And all of those things are only done with time. It's so true. And like in life, the only constant is change. And at any point, your partner could drop dead or be relocated because of work. And so if we put all our eggs in that basket with them, that's like, that's a really dangerous thing to do as opposed to, you know, focusing on investing in ourselves and being our own happily ever after or our own Prince Charming, you know? And that's what the differences are of the loves. I mean, again, with the soulmate, most of us aren't even aware of all of these components. Most of the time, we're not even really aware of self-love. And then with our karmic, it kind of makes us feel like we are addicted to that relationship where we can't live without this person and life is literally over if we're not together But then when we get into the twin flame and that healthy, secure, conscious love, of course, we want to be with that person. But it's also this very bizarre feeling where I hear women saying, do I actually like him? Because I feel like I would be totally okay if something happened and we ended up not being together. And I was like, welcome to being secure. Like, that's what that is. And when we've been operating from a place, whether of anxiousness or lack or wounding or codependency, and all of a sudden we've reached that space within ourselves where of course, we we want that person to choose us as much as we're choosing them. But we also know it's okay if they don't because that's their choice. And if they don't choose me, then that means there's somebody out there that will. And I might be sad. I might have to take some time off, but I'm going to be okay. Ultimately, you're going to be okay, right? And we then, yeah, convince ourselves and, oh, we mustn't like them because we're okay oh, by ourselves. all the time. And it's like, no, that's this is actually what love is supposed to be. <laughs> you should love. actually... Yeah, that's actually what healthy love is, where you can say, okay, I do love you. I, I, want to, I want to explore life with you. I want to move in or get married or travel or have a family. But if you don't want that, I respect that and understand that. I'm going to go off and I'm going to live my amazing life, whether you choose to walk it with me or not. It's but we're so, so conditioned to think that love is, some, is the attachment, like you said, where we don't even recognize it. And that is one of the number one things with women is that they they start questioning if they actually love somebody because they're actually feeling and experiencing that secure, healthy love. So interesting. So what about women who really thought they were in a relationship that would last forever and are now coming to terms with the fact that the relationship was not meant to be, yet still hope on some level they'll get back together? That's the natural thing, right? We all hope that it would somehow get back together. But I think a big part of it is when we are at that space and, you know, we're kind of removing that, say, toxicity or the the up and down cycle of even the karmic. And we just find ourselves in a relationship where maybe there's nothing actually wrong, but it doesn't necessarily feel right. And we realize that either on our end or their end or mutual that it, it feels like it's ending. It feels like it's headed towards that direction. Rather than getting caught up in that, what I say is, you know, having a having the relationship on life support, which is never a good scenario for anybody, is kind of pausing and looking at what has this relationship taught me so far? What, how have I changed because of this relationship? Because, and granted, that takes some security and, you know, reflection and inner awareness. But if we can pause and look at, okay, if I, if I'm just purely looking, not whether it's ending or beginning or any of those things, but if I just look at what was the purpose of this relationship, did it help me be able to maybe accomplish a career or education goal? Did it help me in healing after maybe a traumatic relationship? Did it help show me more of myself? 
Did it, you know, even promote me to move to a different geographic area, whatever it might be. If we can just look at how have I or my life changed since this relationship, we can sometimes be able to get to that point of acceptance of saying, okay, maybe the relationship wasn't meant to last forever, but these are the benefits of it. And I think that's something that's even changing the dialogue of if a relationship ends, it's not because it failed. It simply means that you've outgrown it and that that's okay. There was my, my friends and I were out celebrating our birthdays last weekend and we came across a, a bachelor party and I always ask the groom, I go right up to the groom and I ask him all the questions about love and relationships. But there was one of his friends had said that he just ended this long seven year relationship. And I said, congratulations. And I gave him this huge hug and he's like, what? And I was like, we don't celebrate that enough. We always hear, oh, I'm so sorry, but why? That just means that you reached the end of one journey, that you grew to another level of yourself. And now there's something amazing beyond that. So I think it's just even getting beyond that idea that somehow because we got broken up with or because we had a breakup with somebody, that it's because anything failed. No, you succeeded. You got everything that you needed from that relationship. And now it's time for the next chapter, whether that's you being by yourself or having another partner come in, whatever it may be. Absolutely. I always celebrate people for their breakups. And it's like that (laughs) saying, people come into your life for a reason, a season or a lifetime. You know, sometimes it's just to teach us something and then poof, they're gone. But we get so attached to people and circumstances in our lives and we miss the bigger meaning, you know, or the bigger purpose that's taking place. So I still have friends who fantasize about me getting back with my soulmate, speaking of, um, even though I could not imagine anything worse. uh, What (laughs) advice do you have for women who struggle with these external pressures, whether it's from their friends or their family? So the thing is, is our, our friends and family love us so much. They only want what's best for us. They only want what's good for us. The other factor is that our friends and family give the worst relationship advice. Because (laughs) they are only operating from that place of loving us. They are only operating from that place of wanting the best for us. They don't seldom see the negativity or the toxicity that we brought to it. Of course, it's always their fault, never our fault. And they also have this preconceived idea usually of who we should be with. Another good thing, even looking at that, is if your friend or family member doesn't have the relationship that you would want to have, especially don't listen to their advice because most people can only give advice based on their level of experience. So ultimately a lot of that comes down even to that security because we think of the secure attachment of being okay in relationships if, you know, we don't hear from them for a few hours or a day or, you know, whatever it might be. But it also comes down with being able to be strong enough to make our own relationship decisions and saying, I love you, but I'm not going to tell you what to do with your relationship And I understand you have these feelings, but I actually feel like I know what's best for myself. And that's a big part of kind of what these relationships teach you is that at one point or another, we're either going to be with somebody that our friends and family don't agree with, maybe they don't like, or we're not going to be with somebody that they think is amazing and a perfect fit for us. And that's okay. But the stronger that we are, the more secure we are with ourselves, it's ultimately realizing that if we do still listen to those friends or if we still do feel influenced by that, then that's something that we're probably going to have to learn on the path. But really, in reality, I mean, they love us, but especially girlfriends, I always say they give the worst relationship advice (laughs) because it's just screw him. You don't need him. You need to do better. Or, oh my God, he was so perfect for you. Why won't you give him another chance? He's a nice guy. 
Yeah, the guy that I fought with 24-7 is so perfect for me, you know? (laughs) And when people suggest that I get back with my soul partner, I'm like, so you still see me as the 12-year-old who dated him as opposed to the 33-year-old who's, you know, gone on all these journeys and had all, like, been through all these obstacles and challenges and come out the other side? You still think the person I was with at 12 is right for me? It blows my mind. What's so interesting too that I found is that a lot of times, again, you know, we can only give advice from our level of experience, but there's also that place where a lot of times when people are giving advice, they they want to continue to feel comfortable by their relationship choices. So they will encourage you to make relationship choices that are going to make them feel more comfortable and secure about theirs. So if they stayed with their soulmate partner, but maybe aren't incredibly happy, maybe it's okay Maybe they decide to take their karmic partner. Maybe they decide to be single, whatever it might be. A lot of times, and this is all unconscious, there's no ill motive or ill will in any of this, but people will generally, especially our family and friends, encourage us to seek relationships that are going to make them feel better about their own life choices. Because it's like that black sheep, that X factor, that different thing, that's like a risk. It's a risk because if this person is doing it, then what does that mean about me? It's so true. Often they feel like threatened or something. I I get that a lot from my friends who have had kids. I absolutely must have children according to a lot of my friends who have had children and who also have not slept for about three years now. (laughs) (laughs) And I love my daughters, but I'd be the first one to say, if you are not all in it, nope. (laughs) And I, I always was, but there's a lot of, I've talked with a lot of women and that even is a shameful secret of if I had to do it over again, I wouldn't have children. And I hear that a lot more than we would socially think. So true. People don't say that enough, like openly. No, and they should. I mean, by all of it, because it's it's a part of who we are. It's a part of our experience. And nobody asks a man if he regrets not having a children. So no one really should be asking a woman that either. It's just like not every woman wants to go to medical school or, you know, work at a certain field. Not every woman is going to want to have children. And that's okay. Yeah, okay. that's okay. Exactly. My older daughter actually at this point doesn't think she wants to have children. And I'm like, okay, that's great. No problem. <laughs> it's fine. Exactly. But it's, you know, we grow, we change, but it's just like our careers or what kind of clothing or cars we like. It's the same perspective. It's something that we're making a choice of what resonates or what doesn't. And I feel like women are, they receive so much guilt if they're open about not being sure if they want to have children, because I was always one of those women growing up. I was like, if I don't meet the right person, I'm not going to have children. And I would receive a lot of guilt in return for that, for being honest about that. It's a lot. I mean, and and even that aspect of whether it's the children or even, you know, not wanting a necessarily traditional relationship, which thank goodness is coming in more and more, but there's so many women that I have even spoken with who have been single because their their idea of the perfect relationship is where they each have their own homes and they maybe spend two to three nights together a week, but they have their own space. They have their own homes. They have their own lives. They get to take care of themselves. They don't want to be the housewife making dinner at five o'clock. And some people do. Some men want to be the house husband making dinner at five. And that's great. But it's being able to acknowledge whether it's children, the kind of relationship that you want, the kind of ring, the kind of dress. It all comes down to what you want. As much as we're told that there's this predefined formula to achieving success and happiness, it actually doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Even the diamond ring 
the whole originating of the diamond ring was a marketing ploy by De Beers back in the 1940s because there was a surplus of diamonds. So that's when they came up with the diamonds is forever. That's how it started. It doesn't actually even mean love or unconditional love when you look at the meaning of gemstones. So it's just this whole idea of how things started. And for so long, we kind of mindlessly followed it. And I think it's really incredible and amazing because our generation is starting to be like, wait, hold up. Why are we doing these things? No, I don't want that. That's not me. That doesn't feel good. I don't want children. I don't want a traditional wedding. I don't want to get married at all. And that's great. And I think it speaks to really kind of the difference that we are going to make collectively and globally because we are really starting to stand up. And even if it makes waves in our family and friends, we're still in that place where we're able to really start speaking up for ourselves and what feels good. Absolutely. It's so true. And it's so interesting what you said about the diamond ring, because just recently with Valentine's Day, I said to my boyfriend, don't you dare come at me with those overpriced flowers. (laughs) (laughs) Right. They're going to be $14.99 tomorrow. We don't need them today. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So I really resonated with the part of your book where you said, very often we choose our karmic partner because they exhibit qualities we want for ourselves. That could not have been more true for me. With my karmic love, I struggled to forgive myself for not being happy in the relationship, even though he ticked every box like we spoke about, and for acting the way I did towards the end of the relationship. I was just like basically crazy. Do you have any tips for women struggling with similar guilt? If we're in that situation, especially because, you know, I mean, and this is something that goes across. I mean, this is probably men and women, that aspect of guilt, because, okay, this is who I said I wanted. Check, 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 check. I'm in the relationship that I wanted, yet I'm not fulfilled. I feel empty. I feel lonely. And so that comes down to us being able to accept that a lot of the times what we think we want isn't actually what we need. And being able to understand that you were only operating from your point of knowledge. You wouldn't actually have learned that all of those things didn't actually add up to fulfillment and happiness unless you had it. So you needed to pursue what you thought you wanted, what was important to you in a relationship. We did all the tick, tick, tick marks. We've all done that. And then once we actually had it, that's when we learn whether or not this is fulfilling or this isn't. And the younger we are when we make those checklists, seldom are they going to actually be able to fulfill us in the long term. But I think if we are feeling that guilt, that again comes back to, do you believe you deserve to be happy? You know, well, whose guilt are you actually carrying? Are you carrying your own guilt or are you carrying the guilt because you're changing your mind, because you might be letting people down because this relationship is one that you've outgrown? Are you letting down and feeling guilty because your partner is almost making you feel guilty? Whatever it might be, Seldom do we actually carry that guilt for ourselves. It's usually coming from somewhere else around us. It's so true. I feel like that was such a mic drop moment where you said quite often what we think we want, we don't actually need. And yeah. we- and I've, I've been through that myself. I had the list. I had it all. And it's what we think we want, what would look good, what would match our lifestyle. But it doesn't mean that it's actually what we need as a partner someone to motivate us and inspire us and support us and be there on our awful days and have that adventure with and grow with us and tell us also you're completely off base. You're wrong, but yet still be there to talk through it with you. So having someone actually be what we need rarely, if ever is what we actually thought we wanted. And that's that unto itself really encompasses all of the loves because I guarantee that for most of us, that third love, that forever love 
does not check certain boxes. They probably check boxes we didn't even know we had, but they do not check the boxes in our original list, whether it's what they were like or how old they are or what background they're from or what they do for work or where we're going to live, whatever it is. Usually that third love goes way above and beyond anything we thought that we wanted. It's so true. But how do you work through guilt of being like, okay, I was crazy in that relationship. I didn't have the life experience or the tools that I have now. To we were crazy in a relationship because that's the point is that it's almost like learning and, and having that realization and really coming back. Okay. I was crazy. One is, were we crazy for a justifiable reason? That means were we being cheated on? Was there dishonesty? Was there a lack of transparency? Then actually, no, you were not crazy. You were responding in an appropriate way, but you were denying that you should be acting that way. So that's why we end up feeling crazy. The crazy usually comes from that space of not really being able to accept our inner feelings, our intuition, that you know those red flags are there. The red flags, red balloons, red everything. We know are there, but we're denying it. So we actually make ourselves go crazy. But if we are feeling guilt over our own behavior, it's the reality that nobody's perfect. We're going to have bad days. Yes, you can only operate from that space, but being crazy is okay because it shows us, one, maybe what we don't want to do again, what happens if we ignore our intuition, and also what happens when we allow ourselves to be in situations that we know very well are unhealthy. You're not going to be a healthy person. You're not going to have conscious, amazing reactions to things if you're in this toxic environment where lying and cheating is taking place. It's not possible. It's not possible. Thank you for making me feel better. And just on the (laughs) intuition note, uh, the night that my karmic partner cheated on me, I was actually at home asleep, woke up to him calling me, but I had just had a dream where he cheated on me. And I answered it and I said, so weird, you just called. I just had a dream where you cheated on me. And he had just kissed another girl at a Halloween party, but I only found out six months later. See, so you know that intuition piece. And that's something that's really interesting that comes even like later on in the journey is that for those of us who did have anxious attachment, being triggered and having that anxious attachment triggered, yes, it might be an actual trigger in which there's nothing going on and just that anxious attachment is kind of coming up for greater healing. But sometimes what I've seen is that because we're trying so hard to not operate from that anxious attachment, what's actually happening is our intuition is kicking in. And so we're not actually being able to kind of justify and validate. We're saying, oh, no, it's just my ace attachment. I I can't operate. I need to be more secure. I need to be more calm. Yet there's something there. So if we are farther along in our journey and we do feel that hit, recognize that, yes, maybe it's your anxious attachment, you know, being triggered by a very healthy situation, which does happen. But it could also be your intuition. And again, as women, just being not so quick to second guess ourselves or to judge what we're feeling or thinking, because a lot of times the more we grow and heal, the better our intuition becomes. Yeah. If I had the insight now, I just would have walked away, you know? Yeah. I I would have walked away a whole heck of a lot. I would have had it by new walking shoes. I would have walked away so much. (laughs) Yeah. The beauty of retrospect vision, but we did what we had to do. I had crazy as well. I, I did crazy really phenomenally. Um, but that, <laughs> oh, I, it was beautiful. I mean, it was literally, it was amazing. And then you get to that space where you're like, wait a minute, I actually don't like feeling like that. So what can I control in my external environment to bring me peace instead of chaos, instead of in crazy? Because we all, I mean, especially women, we're kind of special that way. We all have the crazy gene. Any of us can pull it out of our hat at any time. 
we all have it. It's kind of an amazing quality, but we have to keep it in check. So it's looking at what do we have in our environment? If we know that certain situations, relationships, and you know, people are going to kind of make us go crazy, then that falls on us. That's kind of stepping into those big woman's shoes and saying, okay, I, I may want to do this. I may like this kind of relationship. I may like the bad boy, but if I get crazy and I don't really want to be like that, well, then you have to start being able to say, okay, then I can't have that in my life. I need to protect my space. And the more secure we become with ourselves, we're able to protect our space and say, no, only the things, and that doesn't mean that we're not going to have fights or bad days, but it's protecting our space where I am choosing to not participate and not walk in my crazy shoes every single day, which means this is what my space needs to look like. This is what is allowed into my space to encourage me to have peace and a healthiness. Fortunately, I'm very proud to say that I've officially grown out of the bad boy the level of anxiety. We all thing. deserve that when we do. <laughs> the, sleepless it is nights, <laughs> the pacing, the loss of appetite, nothing is worth that. Like nothing. Nope. There is nothing <laughs> that's worth it. You know, and you, there's so many stories about it. And we all, we all go through that phase. And I, I married the ultimate bad boy in my life. And you know, it turned out exactly as it was meant to by divorce. So <laughs> that's kind of really the only path for the bad boy um, because the bad boy seldom grows up to be that man that we actually need. But it's an important part of our journey. And a lot of times that bad boy, again, can show us what are we looking for, you know, that mirroring in relationship. What are they doing? What are they being? How are our family relating to them? What are they bringing to our lives that we're craving? Whatever it might be. You know, and it's being able to kind of look at that. And even if some of them is good and some of them is bad, you know, there's a whole, it's always complex. And I always say, no matter how unhealthy the relationship is, it's not always all bad. If a relationship was all bad, nobody would stay. We would say, I'm out of here. But there's always these little moments, whether it's love bombing or whether it's just a good day here or there, there's always enough good that gives us reason to stay. So it's never, we, we never stay because of the good. We never continue with the bad boys because of the good. It has to be, we're leaving because of everything else. That's what it has to be. Because the good, no matter how awful the relationship is, there's still good moments. And that goes against even what we're told mainstream wise. That, that's, but that's, that's the case. That's the reality. There is no relationship, even the worst unhealthiest relationship I've heard of, they'll have a good day together. He'll get her flowers. They'll go out to dinner. They'll go on vacation. But yet it is completely unhealthy. But that's where the guilt feeds into it because you, your brain then goes into protection mode in the breakup phase and you only remember the good times and the good qualities. And then you start to feel bad for making the decision to choose yourself and walk away. And that's what I did for literally years and years and years. And I just kind of replayed history in my head over and over again. And I see it in my clients now. And I just, I don't know why we do it, but I just so wish that people knew <laughs> not to feel well, guilty. Part of it is that, you know, it's not just the guilt of even the relationship, but sometimes it's actually accepting that we chose that. So a lot of times we will self-protect and we'll remember the good so that we don't actually have to take the full accountability for taking the bad and choosing the bad day after day. When I'm working with women, as much as, you know, yes, positive and love and light and all this stuff, when we're having those breakups, I always say, literally make a list of all of the ways that he did not meet your needs. 
Make a list of all of the things that he did to hurt you. Make a list of all of the ways that he betrayed you. And sometimes it's actually better to, I've literally had women have to reread it on a daily basis. I'm feeling guilt. I'm remembering when he took me away and surprised me with roses and a bath. Reread the list. And then it's like, oh, he was emotionally unavailable. He cheated on me. You know, he didn't show up for me when I was sick. All of these things. And it's like, okay, that helps ground us in reality because our brains will keep going towards it. And then it's recognizing and realizing we did stay in that relationship for a purpose. No, we didn't honor ourselves by staying, but we honored ourselves by leaving. And if they did and were the ones that walked away, we at least honored ourselves by not going back. So true. Absolutely. So when I reflect on my previous loves, I now question whether it was ever love at all and instead wonder if it was just lust, infatuation or trauma bonding like we've spoken about that I learned from my childhood disguised as love, even though I was with each of them for years. Do you think it's possible to mistake love for something else in a relationship? I think it absolutely is, but I also think that we are only capable, I mean, to go back now, once you've learned what love really is and then discount it, of course. I mean, myself, I'm included in the group of, did I really love my ex-husband? I don't know. You know, I've, I've had those moments, but it's the realization that at that moment, that's what I thought love was. Was it attachment? Was it the trauma bonding? Was it working through our previous wounds? Absolutely. But if we felt love in that moment, then it has to be something that's honored. And I think that's even looking at it that there's different types of love. There is a soulmate. There's a karmic love, not just looking at it as a person, but almost a type of love. It gives kind of that greater awareness that as we learn and grow, just as we would learn to speak a new language, we're not going to learn automatically how to have fluent conversations. We're going to stumble. We're going to make mistakes. It's going to be rocky. It's the same thing with love. We're not really fluent in love when we're just starting off in life. So I think there is a lot of attachment that goes into play. Um, a lot of that kind of society and societal conditioning over what relationships are and a lot of the wounding. But ultimately, it was us all being part of that process where we were learning how to be fluent in what love really is. And so I did not see my most recent relationship coming at, at all. I was like the furthest thing from my mind. I was like so ready. It's how, to- it's how you can tell that it's, you know, a good one is because you didn't see it coming and you weren't looking for it. Exactly. Like I was just in that single mindset, wanting to spread my wings, you know, date, get out there. And I started dating my now boyfriend the very week that I launched the Single at 30 podcast. So that's like irony. Right. I was going to say. I'm declaring to the world, hey guys, I'm single. And then boom, I meet my boyfriend. I'm not single anymore. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And so even though I think he's like the most handsome and beautiful person inside and out, like you said, he is just not my usual type whatsoever. If I saw him on a dating app, I'm not even convinced that I would have swiped right. Like we have such different interests. Oh, absolutely. Exactly. But at the same time, it feels so easy and comfortable and in just many ways, right. So would you say he's my twin flame? (laughs) I would have to. (laughs) Again, I always say that, that, you know, we have to let the relationship progress and see how it plays out. But even what you described, absolutely. I mean, even, you know, the man that I look at and, you know, and consider my third love, I would not have swiped on him on a dating app. And I don't think he would have swiped on me either. 
But that's kind of where that magic comes in, where you realize that it's not about what you think you want. It's about what you need and that it's more about what complements you. You know, as much as we look for similarities and doing all of those things, which to a degree, some of them are important. We actually, nobody really wants to date ourselves. Nobody wants to date themselves. And when we focus on the similarities and all of that, all we end up doing is dating ourselves or dating a version of our sister or our cousin or whatever, you know, whatever it might be. But it's really that piece of recognizing with that third love, it usually comes when we're completely fine, embraced being single, totally good on our own. It's not someone we ever would have really swiped right at, but it does. There's an, there's an ease to it. There's, there's a sense of it just feels right, even if we can't explain it, even if we haven't been together a long time. And I think the biggest difference with the twin flame is that you really encourage each other to grow because in the karmic relationship, you'll want to grow but like one person will want to go more and then they'll usually stifle themselves to kind of remain where they're at. The soulmate, nobody even knows what growth is. We're just together and dating and maybe going to get married. But the twin flame is really about, I think you're incredible. I really think you should do this. Have you ever thought about starting this or incorporating that? And they're all about really pushing you to become this bigger, better, amazing version of yourself. And that's what's so incredible about it. It is so true because with my karmic love, even though he ticked all of the boxes, there was like, it was as if he was competitive with me and he didn't support me. Instead, he put me down. He didn't encourage me. And with my current boyfriend, he's like in my corner. He is so supportive, so encouraging. We both have our own lives, our own interests, our own dreams, our own passions, and we equally support them for one another you know, and even though we're so different, where he's so interested in everything that I'm interested in and wants to support that and nourish that aspect of my life. So in that sense, he really does sound like my twin flame. But when we got together, obviously he was so foreign to me. I'd never dated someone like this before. And I remember one night we were walking home from work and I just listed all of the red flags that I saw, which uh, was- The red flags in that, Yeah. <laughs> We don't like to do the same things. You like golf. You like sport. You like pop. Like you know, a woman that I, it totally reminded me of a woman that I work with, and she did the same thing. So she had this new guy come in, and I was like, "All right, well, what's the red flags?" And as she's talking, I'm like, "You realize that those are actually green flags, right? Like they're not red flags at all. We're not talking about toxicity or unhealthy or mental health issues. Like you're actually listing green flags." Yes, so true. He'll be very happy to hear that you said that. <laughs> but one of them also was like, I'm a deeply spiritual person and he's not at all. So I'm curious, do you think that that's a deal breaker? And I should probably say he's so supportive of that side that's of my life. A difference. Yeah, I don't think it's a deal breaker at all. Um, and even those types of differences, I mean, even if we're looking at a twin flame dynamic, there's usually one person that's always more spiritual than the other. Um, or at least introduces it to the other. There's usually one person that first becomes aware of even what a twin flame is and they introduce it. Rarely, I mean, I don't think it's ever happened in my kind of reflection on it, but we'll say rarely do both people kind of have the same level. Rarely do they kind of come together and think about it at the same time. But the biggest difference of what you're saying is that he supports it. So it's not a matter. He's obviously not judging it. He's not putting it down. And in that relationship, he's not stifling your growth. So you will be able to grow spiritually. And as of right now, no, he's not spiritual, but who knows what's going to happen a decade from now. Just because it's not something that he thinks is of interest now doesn't mean that it's not going to be something that you end up being able to kind of help 
bring to him later on on his journey. But ultimately, even as you're describing your relationship with him and how he supports you and how you both talk and communicate and uplift each other, what you're also showing is what happens when we do the work for ourselves, how it changes who we attract. So you're not attracting another lesson at this point. You've done the work within yourself. You did the abstinence and the not dating, which nobody likes to hear that advice. I'm sure you know firsthand. <laughs> there people are like, oh, really? But you did all of that work. You looked at, I'm sure, your own childhood wounds. You looked at your level of attachment, how you feel about things. And so you got to that place where, you know, it's there again, there's never a perfect level. No one ever wakes up and is like, I'm healed. I love myself. No, we're, we're always on a journey towards it. But you've gotten there. And so now this is someone that you attract. Now you attract someone who feels confident within himself, who's able to show up for you in the ways that you need in a very healthy way. Because in reality, when a man can't fully support the woman that he's with, when he does put her down, it's because he's being insecure with himself, because he feels like less of a man, because he's operating more from his boy phrase than his than his man phase of life. Um, and so in that sense, no, of course not. But as women, we also have to own that we will attract the boys in relationships because we're still in our little girl phase. So true. And even though he's not spiritual, the second we started dating, he started meditating. And so, yeah. you know. So, I mean, that's, that's even a huge piece. So, I mean, in not spiritual, but meditating, he still has that aspect. You still are able to share that together. So even in that, it shows his op- openness, which I'm sure the longer you're together and the more experiences you share together, I'm sure that that's going to deepen. So even for people listening, if it does feel like one person is far more spiritual or far more advanced, or they've done more practice in yoga, but the other person's never done anything, none of that is a deal breaker. Again, we're bringing in that complementary energy. You wouldn't want to date someone that was just like you. So the fact that he is, you have your similarities, but he's also different enough where you both balance each other. And that's also tying in really that true essence of, you know, that feminine and masculine energy is that it's not about being the same, but about bringing balance to one another. It's so true. And I feel like we all search for like our replica and then I ask myself, would I actually want to date myself? And the answer is always no. So there's not enough focus on finding someone who compliments us and balances us. You know, we just think that we need- in order to actually do that, you have to get to know who you are. And nobody's telling anybody to do that, especially in their 20s. Yeah. And I'm the first one to say, I don't want to date someone like me. I need, I mean, we would all be sitting around in our feelings talking about love every day, writing. That would be horrible. I don't want to do that. <laughs> I need someone that kind of gets me out of that, that pulls me out of that a little bit and balances me. And I think we all have to realize though, that in order to be able to find someone that balances you, that does compliment you, you have to be very real with yourself. You have to know who you are. You have to know your strengths. You have to know your own weaknesses and you have to know kind of what you need and what you're looking for. And until we've had those other life experiences, until we've had those relationships, we don't know enough to know what is our, you know, our common, our mirror, our similarity, or someone that's actually in true balance with us. It's so true. And I'm such an indoor cat and my boyfriend is such like a Labrador and I'm really good at being, and he's really good at doing. <laughs> no, I'm an indoor cat as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he, it's like, we compliment each other in the sense that he's you know, the doing side of the relationship and I'm the being side of the relationship. And if it was left up to me, my head would just be in the clouds 24 seven. So I need him to ground me, you know, but sometimes it's easy to get caught in your head and be like, why can't we just chill? <laughs> like, <you know? laughs> why can't you just exactly. be more like me instead of like appreciating the balance more? 
Well, and that's, you know, again, that's what happens kind of when we start really looking at and approaching our third love is that even if we're feeling that like, oh, you know, maybe they're always busy, maybe they're always at home, maybe whatever it is, it's looking at, okay, but what am I actually receiving from that? What's the benefit? Why am I choosing that? And I think even asking ourselves that question of, you know, not just the little things about whether someone's in, you know, an indoor cat or an outdoor Labrador, but asking ourselves on a daily basis, why am I choosing this person? Why am I choosing this person? Because now by the time we get to our third love, not having that self-reflection is not an excuse. We need to be there for us. We need to have that for ourselves. And it's not anything negative about the relationship at all. But when we look at and say, okay, why am I choosing this relationship today? It kind of gives that bigger perspective of what are they actually bringing into our lives? What are they, you know, fulfilling within our lives that we don't have within us? Because that's also that idea too, is kind of giving up that idea that we have to be everything. We don't have to be everything. Nobody is meant to be everything. If we truly were everything and did everything and didn't need anybody, then we'd all be living in these little individual pods around the world by ourselves. And that's not how it is. I always say that whether it's our doctor or our mechanic or our lover, we need people in our lives. We are a society built on need. We need to have our car fixed. We need to go to the doctor if we're sick. We need to go to our herbalist, whatever it might be. We need certain people. So then getting to the idea that we shouldn't need our lover is contradictory to the whole aspect of our lives. When we need to be raised by people, we need to be loved when we're children. The same is true. It's just a matter of when we're adults, now we're needing someone who can compliment us, who's not exactly the same, who's going to challenge us, who's going to kind of help us keep growing and doing those things. But there is a need there and recognizing that not only is that okay, that's what it should be. You know, we hear about that idea that we should, we don't just, I don't need you, but I want you. But if you don't really need somebody, there should be that need. It doesn't mean it has to be financial. It doesn't mean it has to be emotional all the time, but it's looking at what is this person bringing to my life that I think is unique and special in a way that makes my life more fulfilling and satisfying. And when we can look at that need and say, okay, is that being met by anybody else in my life? Have those needs ever been met by anybody else in our life? With that third love, we'll often say, no, it's solely that person. Even if it's something as no matter what kind of day I have, they somehow make it all better at the end when we talk. Even if it's something as simple as that, it's knowing I need this person in my life, whether it's because of what they bring to it, their energy, their love. I've never had that before in my life. And recognizing that it's okay. We can need someone and also not be afraid that we're going to lose it either. One of my favorite quotes comes from the book Attached, which is we're only as needy as our unmet needs. I recommend that book to everybody. (laughs) Oh, do I? It's like one of like that in the codependent no more. I'm like, this is like, should be like the welcome packet to working on yourself. (laughs) And it basically just like sets the record straight that in modern society, there's so much emphasis on not needing people. But of course, when you're in a relationship, just even on a physiological level, you start to intertwine and need that person. And it doesn't mean we should depend on that person, but of course, in that relationship, you're going to have needs and only that person can serve those needs in their own unique way. But I think that it's important to also remember that it doesn't mean the relationship's not going to be challenging, even though they might be your twin flame. And I think that's a common misconception that when we meet our forever person, the challenges go out the window. It's going to be easy and everything is going to flow and every day is going to be walking in sunshine and sunflowers and it's going to be amazing. 
No, because we're still human. I always say like, we are dirty, messy people. We have to shower. We go to the bathroom. We're still learning. We, we bleed if we cut ourselves. We are messy humans. And so even when we find that love that is absolutely amazing, that third love, it challenges up and supports us. And it's just incredible, almost to the point that we don't even have words for it. Yeah, it might even challenge you in ways that are deeper than any of the other loves. Because that relationship is going to really challenge you to can you authentically be yourself? Can you stand up to family and friends that don't think that you're a good match together? Are you going to be able to be strong enough to actually forge your own path? Are you going to be able to take accountability when we slip up, when we have a day where we do get triggered and we avoid something or we try to use an old coping mechanism? And it's honoring all of that. But it's interesting because, you know, we talk about all these triggers. Our soulmate, we have no idea what triggers are. Again, we're just dating, having fun, you know, hang out on Friday night. Our so our karmic relationship, really the whole relationship is like teaching us what a trigger even is because we're in this, we're, we're hurting. We don't know why we're hurting cycle, cycle, cycle. We start healing. It's really only in that third love, that relationship that we actually get triggered because there's a difference between having that emotional reaction and acting from a place of anxiety or codependency and not knowing that we actually are those things, which is usually what happens in the karmic relationship where we'll act out, we'll argue, we'll fight, but we don't actually realize that it's because of our abandonment, because of our sense of lack, because of our codependency. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I love the word where I say it's a recovering codependent because we're never completely over it. We are in a state of recovery. We are always recovering because it's there. But then when we get to that twin flame, that third love, we're aware of all of that. So really it's that third love that actually is a, you know, a true trigger because now we're being triggered by our karmic, by our soulmate, by our childhood. But now we actually have the language, the knowledge and the awareness to recognize, okay, I'm feeling super anxious. I don't want to act out. I don't need to text them 30 times in a row or show up at their place of work. How do I need to sit with this and process this? And it's a completely different experience because now we're not just acting from a place of woundedness, having no idea what's wrong with us. Now we're saying, okay, I'm feeling this way, but I'm going to make this choice to act in this way. And again, that's not every day. That's most of the time. Sometimes no matter who we are, how far along we get, we all have that instantaneous reaction of I'm scared. I'm upset. I'm anxious. I feel like there's like a, I'm people pleasing, whatever it might be. And we might not always act from that space. So it's most of the time. And it's being gentle with ourselves, realizing that there's no state of perfection that we're trying to achieve. We're never going to be in a relationship where we have no arguments, where it doesn't trigger us, where everything is easy every day, because that's not the point of relationships. It's a relating. You're relating to each other. And humans relating to humans is a messy thing. Absolutely. But on the note of those triggers, I, in my previous relationships, used to mistake those triggers for like chemistry or spa. Oh, yeah. And so now in my current relationship, it's so peaceful. It's so easy. It's so normal. And then I often <laughs> catch myself thinking, do we lack that spark? You know, there's no ups, there's no downs. It's just always, you know, calm. <laughs> and so <laughs> so normal though. It's so normal to be feeling that. Is there something missing if there's not that spark that we're used to? Well, the thing is, is that a lot of times that, especially the spark that we usually all talk about, 
what that usually ends up being is the attraction between an, an anxious attachment and an avoidant attachment. That's usually what creates that crazy chemistry and the spark because you have one person who needs constant validation and reinforcement. And then you have another person who's almost programmed not to give it when they need it the most. And so that's what creates that attraction and chemistry where you have two, you know, think about the opposite ends of the battery. They keep coming together. They charge each other. They plug each other up. But when we are in this consistent, healthy love, it can feel like that a little bit. It can feel like, where is the spark? And even a lot of times in relationships, say we are with our third love, but we're still kind of healing. I've even spoke with people who maybe have had that initial spark, but then if people's attachments are growing and healing, and now maybe we're, we were aware that we're anxious. And so now we're working to be more secure or we were avoidant and now we're working to be more secure. That, that spark, that chemistry that we have labeled as such is not going to necessarily grow with the relationship. It's going to feel more secure, more stable, more calm. And so a lot of times if we are in a relationship and we're saying, okay, but what about that spark? It's recognizing and understanding that that spark is likely that product of our wounding and that we as a society have been programmed to look for and fixate on the spark. When in reality, that spark is a lot of times related to something unhealthy in the relationship because we should be able to live without our partner. We should be able to have consistent, healthy love. It doesn't mean the sex has to be horrible. It just means that now you're going to be in a consistent relationship where it's not going to be up and down. And it's almost like rather than having that karmic drug fix, now it's just this constant you know, source of nourishment. It's a very different type of love, very different type of experience. Kate, you've just blown my mind because every partner before my current boyfriend was avoidant and I hadn't done the work on myself yet. So I was very anxious and fearful Yep. And then I think my current boyfriend and I met both when we had become secure and that's why it feels so consistent and calm. And you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. Yeah. That's, that, that's the biggest thing. Most of the time when I talk and they're like, oh my God, the chemistry and the attraction. And I, we start talking about the attachment and I was like, okay, well, that makes sense. <laughs> so we don't want to say always, I'm a big proponent of everybody can learn something new. There's always that, but for the most part, that anxious and avoidant, that's where we end up feeling that biggest sense of chemistry. And so it is different. Absolutely. And so I'm in my thirties, as you know, and I've watched a lot of my friends around me meet their partners. And literally within the space of a year, they're like, I love you. They move (laughs) in, they get engaged and they have their first baby. Yes. Right. And I'm in a relationship where I would describe it as a very slow burn. Do you think there is a correct formula when it comes to love and relationships? Absolutely not. None. Because a lot of times when we're able to be in a relationship and we can say, okay, I love you. There is that fine line between are we in love for the milestones and for reaching what we think we're supposed to do or what we think we have to have? Or are we in love and able to see where it goes, where where we eventually want to end up? And even looking at that idea that, you know, I mean, traditionally, you know, marriage wasn't even necessarily part of a religious ceremony. It was more of the joining of families for financial purposes. So, you know, there is a lot to be said with exploring why do you want to get married? Is it for the amazing party? Well, then have a party, you know. Is it for, you know, the awesome dress? Anyone can buy it. I had a great girlfriend who after her wedding, she loved her dress so much. She would wear it around the house while she vacuumed and washed the dishes because she's like, there's no way I'm wearing this wedding dress just once. Amazing. So whatever it is, it kind of again goes back to that aspect of what it is that we actually need. 
But whether a relationship follows kind of this set prescription of this is what we do, marriage and introducing to the families and moving in and all of that, or whether we do have that slow burn and say, I don't know if we're going to get married. I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know if we're going to buy a house. I don't know if we're going to live in this area. That's okay because you're actually giving more room to grow. Sometimes we know the path and that's what we want. And I'm obviously glad that I did it from my life experience and my amazing, incredible daughters. But in reality, that milestone, that path doesn't guarantee anything except that you're going to achieve those milestones. So it can be wonderful. And sometimes, especially like you said, we do it later in our 30s and it lasts forever. And that's amazing. But when we don't have that, when we kind of take that out of the equation and we love someone just for the sake of love, and we just can't wait to see what this journey has, you're actually leaving more room for growth for your own individual aspect of what does love mean to me? What does commitment mean to me? What does authenticity mean? And that ends up being able to, you know, that that's ultimately really more about that third love too. Yeah. Interesting. And do you think there's a trick to finding our forever love or happily ever after? So it's, a, it's an interesting piece because I've, I have spoken with people who have come across or have known their third love at different times in their life, or they've had it, they've, they've been in their circle. It feels like to really start opening our eyes up to our third love, which is again, not an answer that people are going to like, it's the more you look at yourself because you could have this amazing relationship literally waiting right in front of you. It could be healthy, incredible, great communication, but if you're still looking at the bad boys, if you're still scrolling on Saturday night because you're lonely, if you're afraid to address what happened to you when you're a child, if you're feeling insecure or like you need someone else to build you up, then you're never going to see that. It's this very interesting piece where we can even meet someone who potentially will end up being our third love. But that's the most, that's the biggest defining factor is if we have done that work of even beginning to look at ourselves even beginning to say, okay, I want to find out who I am. I I want to see what life is all about. I want to find a greater meaning. I want to start owning my own stuff so I don't infect everybody around me. Once we start doing that, now we're finally able to spot it. It's almost like this special vision that we really don't kind of understand or have until we start taking that look at ourselves. So for anybody who's hoping or wants to or really needs and want, you know, wants that twin flame love, honestly, the only way to achieve that, the only way to fast track that, again, because you could already know this person, this person could literally be in your life right now. But unless you take that pause, take some time with yourself and really start diving deep. And I had a great friend once we were talking about childhood wounds and I said, I know it's a cliche. And he's like, but cliches are true for a reason. So the best way to figure out what you need to hear within yourself, even if you're not yet ready to talk about it, is by answering those honest questions of what was my childhood like? Did I receive? And it doesn't matter. Our parents can be amazing. They can be the best people on the face of the earth, but it doesn't mean that you still receive the love and the affection that you needed as a child. And for so many 30s and above, especially that idea, we were told that we were loved unconditionally as children. But there wasn't necessarily that action of unconditional love for us. So even sometimes, even if we have these great childhoods and we have all these great memories, sometimes that one aspect of a wound is that we were only loved conditionally, which meant that we felt like we had to earn the love by doing certain things or by people pleasing. And then that cycles right into our relationship. So 
even something in that sense, you know, sometimes I've talked with people and they feel like almost like they're betraying their families by looking at their childhood wounds. And it's, no, I, I, I love my daughters, but I tell them, I'm like, you're going to have childhood wounds. I'm not doing everything perfectly. You're going to have to work through your stuff someday. I'm sure it is. I mean, I'm a writer. I'm a mom. I talk with people. I mean, I'm sure they're going to have their own set of stuff. So, but we all are. And it's, you're not betraying your parents that you love by looking at your childhood wounds. You're just looking at, okay, I'm recognizing and realizing that I had these needs as a child and they were not fulfilled. And that's okay. It doesn't mean my parents are bad people. It doesn't mean I I have to not talk with them or that I don't love them. But how can I film, fulfill those needs for myself now so that it won't keep showing up in my relationships? It's so true, but I feel like it's such a hard pill for people to swallow because we observe people who have hit rock bottom and have somehow met the love of their lives, you know, who don't appear to be doing the work on themselves, whether they're binge drinking every weekend or sleeping with, or, you know, sleeping around with any Tom, Dick or Harry who come into their lives and then boom, <laughs> overnight, they're happily in love. And then there are other women or people who are reading every book, listening to every podcast, attending every seminar and can't seem to figure it out or, you know, have that sort of luck where they just, meet that person. Do you know why that is? Is there an explanation for this? So one, as far as the first scenario that you're describing, having that doesn't mean it's actually going to last. You know, that's a big thing too, is that it's, it's easy to look at somebody and say, oh my God, they're, you know, they're in this relationship and it came out of nowhere, but it is incredibly rare. Can it happen? Absolutely. But if we are in a really toxic, bad place, it is incredibly rare to actually attract somebody. And again, we only have an outside perspective of relationships. No matter how good your girlfriend is, she might not be telling you the full truth of the relationship. So it's that space of recognizing, realizing, you know, kind of almost releasing that envy that we have for what the relationship looks like on the outside. It's like window shopping. That dress looks amazing, but it doesn't mean it's actually going to look amazing on you. So yes, that can happen, but it's very rare because it's almost like that situation of, if we are in that space of, you know, like you said, sleeping with every Tom, Dick and Harry and drinking and binge drinking, that's where we are on our journey. And maybe this person is this amazing guy who's coming in and helping be this catalyst. So maybe this person gets their life together. Maybe they stop drinking. Maybe they start healing. To it's amazing, them. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to last forever. For the woman who is doing all the stuff, I would actually suggest stop doing Maybe read one book, but stop doing because the more we're focusing on all of the workshops and all of the classes and all of the coaches and the twin flame six month forecast and all this stuff, we are radiating an aura of lack. We are saying I am lacking this. And so now I have taken finding a partner on as a full time job. That's not what love is. So I would say in that sense, stop doing one look at is the action of trying to get love into your life actually creating the walls from re- to receive it and really looking at how open and receptive are you? And again, to the people that don't check all your boxes, that don't look like the person that you would be with, because that's also advice that I tell women is that nine times out of 10, that amazing love is not going to be the physical type that you think you want. It's not going to come dressed in that big, tall, big package. It's going to come dressed differently, but is he going to emotionally support you? Absolutely. Is he going to be there for you? 110%. So it's making sure that one, we're not radiating that sense of lack in those relationships and, you know, by constantly putting that effort and work in, because yes, we can work on ourselves, but in any relationship, it's not all us. Looking at how open are we to actually receive 
And also, what are we really looking for? And a lot of the women who are the doing, 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 a lot of them, their hearts are still connected to somebody else that they haven't quite gotten over. So they might say they're open. They might say they're available, but they're not actually open and available. And so in that sense, it's really looking at and saying, okay, instead of the doing, 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 are you still in love with somebody? Are you still attached to somebody? Do you have walls up? Do you believe you can accept and receive love? And then get out there and live life. Go for a hike. Take that trip. Go on that bike ride because guess what? That's where you're going to meet your person, not in a conference listening to a bunch of women who want love. Kate, you're blowing my mind because when <laughs> I was in the doing phase, it was in that, those five years I took off from dating and I was just reading the books, you know, listening to the podcast. Oh, yeah. I mean, we all do it. Like, like we're like eating and drinking it up constantly. But I wasn't over my most recent heartbreak, you know? And then the second I just relaxed and accepted my singledom and embraced it, boom, you know, met my most recent partner. And it's exactly like that saying, it happens when you least expect it. But that really annoys people because when they're in the doing things. <laughs> it annoys people. Yeah. A lot of great advice actually annoys people. Be abstinent for a while, be single, get to know yourself, look at your childhood. It all annoys people. It does. It's so true. So what do you say to women struggling with their personal timeline and the fact that they might not be married to their forever person or have kids by the age and stage they had previously planned? These women who are busy doing, what do you say to them? (laughs) Well, I ask them and it's, you know, one, where did that come from? Because a lot of times when I've asked women about this, it's something that they were told, that they heard. And in reality, sometimes a career was more important. Sometimes they had to take care of younger siblings. And so it's recognizing too that how much that conditioning plays. We're conditioned not just about the rings or the white dress or the timeline. We're conditioned to think, okay, if I'm not married by the time I'm 38, I'm never going to get married. If I don't have kids by the time I'm 38, I'm never going to have kids. When that's inaccurate, that means we're comparing ourselves. The more we compare ourselves in any sense to anything, it takes away from our own experience of it. There's a reason why it took us to this point of our journey. There's a reason why we had to learn everything. There's a reason why that we got divorced. And that was one of my major fears when I was getting divorced. It was, and granted, my ex-husband being his lovely self, you know, fueled that by telling it to me. But I was worried that nobody would want me. I was worried that nobody would ever want me again. I was a ruined woman. I was divorced. I'd had children. Who would want me? And that was actually a huge fear. It was like, oh my God, am I going to be alone the rest of my life? At that point, what was I? I think it was like 31 or 32. It was like, now I think back and I'm like, what? Like, who was even thinking that? Like, why on earth would I think that I was going to be alone for the rest? What is that? The next like 60 years, maybe. But again, we worry about those things. We tell ourselves that. But again, it's letting go of the judgment and being really honest about where that conditioning for the timeline came from. Because I've never, I've I've talked with women all the time who go through that but it's never their own beliefs or ideas. It's because that's what their parents did. That's what their friends did. That's what they had always thought that they would do. But then you talk to them and they're like these amazing CEOs of these companies, or they're making a huge difference at a nonprofit, or they raise their siblings after the death of a parent. And it's like, wait a minute, like that's not, you might have thought this, you might have been conditioned to believe this is true, but look at your journey. It's just as important as if you had gotten married when you thought that you would have. And so it's just, again, dropping that judgment of self, which goes back to the love. And the more we love ourselves, the less we judge how we got to where we are, then the more open that we're going to be to what comes our way. 
It's so true. And what would you say to someone who has given up hope of finding their forever love altogether? Uh, please don't. <laughs> I would say please don't. The thing is that there's a big difference between letting go of the searching and looking. But if you feel like you absolutely have no hope in finding your forever love, I would again ask you, do you believe that you're worthy and deserving of being loved and having all of your needs met? Because the only time that we really give up hope is either because we're questioning our own worthiness or because we're afraid to get hurt again. Because no one really wants to give up hope. Nobody really wants to say, I don't think love exists for me. We only say that either out of self-protection, a coping mechanism, or because deep down, even if we don't want to admit it, there's a part of us that still feels unworthy. Because I'm of the opinion, if you want it, it's because it's destined for you. You wouldn't have that desire if it was not destined for you. So the fact that you're giving up is just like you said, an indication that you either don't think you're deserving or you lack, you know, you lack faith. And I completely agree. And it's, you know, sometimes it is, it's a lot harder to have hope because the one thing that life teaches us is our hopes do get crashed. Sometimes they do get hurt. They do burn out. We sometimes hope for something, but it's not ultimately what's supposed to last forever. And so then we feel badly, but hope is really the fuel for life. Hope is the fuel for love. You can't love someone without hope. You can't love yourself without hope. You can't truly embrace this amazing life without hope. And yes, it's scary to take a chance. It's scary to admit that you're worthy, but you don't know how, when, or how someone else could possibly meet your needs. But it's really amazing when you allow yourself to open because even just that energetic shift between I have no hope in love to I do have hope, now now you're welcoming that in instead of closing it off. Because a lot of times we actually are pushing away subconsciously what it is we say that we want, again, out of fear or unworthiness. That's it. Absolutely. We're our own worst enemy. But I think it's also important to just like not be so focused on what it looks like. And that's what I loved about how you described the twin flame. (laughs) It's not going to look how you imagined it to. And so like in regards to the timeline, it hasn't happened yet. It's because you had an idea of when it was supposed to happen and it didn't happen then. And so you've given up hope for the future, which is just ridiculous. We just have to sort of relinquish control, but at the same time, be open to receiving, which is really hard to do. It's really hard. And it does go back to that sense of self, because again, the more we're fulfilling our own needs, the more secure we are within our own self, the more we love ourselves, then we're also not looking at these things as kind of being depleting or of being a character flaw or a character trait, or we did something wrong we're able to have that acceptance because the acceptance piece of all of this and for ourselves and for our love journey is huge. We have to accept that we are where we at for a reason. We have to accept that that person was either able to love us in the ways that we needed or they weren't. We have to accept that the relationship ended. We have to accept that sometimes no matter what we do, people that we love more than anything are not going to respect and support our relationship decisions. And that's okay. The acceptance piece is a huge key to this relationship because when we really truly accept something, no matter what it is, at its core level, we're also freeing ourselves from being responsible for it. So true. We just have to trust the process more. Trust the process and trust ourselves. I mean, we've gotten here. We've gotten to this moment. We all have been bruised and scraped up a little bit along the way, had our hearts broken, but we made it here. And we made it here for a reason, not to not have love, not to have our hopes crash, not to be hurt again. 
we made it here so that we can actually grow into the women that we always knew that we were and that we can have that relationship that we've always dreamed because deep down, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you are worthy of even the best possible love that you can even possibly imagine and beyond that. Absolutely. So before I met my now boyfriend, I dated the same narcissistic type over and over again. (laughs) I wish I could say I'm surprised, Nicole, but I'm not really interesting. There's a bunch of women I have talked to like that and I do astrology as well. So I'm like, I'm like, give me all their birth information. And honestly, most of the time, these same types, their birth charts are identical. So there was literally one woman who had been with like these three major partners, all karmic, all narcissists, all horrible, different birth days, but because of how the charts and the planets aligned, they were identical birth charts. She literally dated the same man three times. That is crazy. So why do you think certain types of people and relationship patterns follow us in life? We haven't learned our lesson. We keep repeating the lesson until we've learned it. And especially with that, you know, that codependent and anxious attachment, the narcissist is like the ultimate drug because they're going to give you enough to keep you addicted. We're going to get high off that love drug and feel good, but then they're going to take it away. So then they trigger our insecurity and our anxiety. And then we have to use our codependency and people please and beg them to come back and overextend ourselves. And it's this wonderful toxic cycle. And honestly, that narcissist and the karmic relationships more normal than not, it's completely okay to have more than one. It's not wrong. It's not bad. We don't always get all three. Sometimes I talk with a woman once and she's like, I think my soulmate is my best gay guy friend. And I'm like, he could be. She's like, we do everything but have sex. She's like, we even sleep together. And I'm like, well, it definitely could be, you know, it's that person, but they, their friendship even had a change. And many people do have multiple karmic partners, And as much as people don't want to hear it and don't want to see it because it involves a lot of work and loneliness, as you and I know on the path, if you truly learn the lesson, what's triggering that lesson is going to disappear from your path. It's so true because all of those previous narcissistic partners were just triggering my childhood wounds. And once I had healed those wounds, it was like they couldn't affect me anymore. And I just walked straight past them. And they lost their power. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So Which is what the narcissist hates to have happen. So. Oh, a hundred percent. They just love on me more and more and more, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so do you think the same love happens more than once? No. I think that even if you have, the, say, three multiple karmic partners, if you look at just that aspect of every single person in this world is different which means that even though we say love, I mean, and really in the English language anyway, we are one of the very few that only have a minimal number of words to describe love. Other languages like Greek, they have seven, you know, even traditional different Asian cultures, they have multiple words to describe what love means. So I think I, I every single love will be different. Um, something that I always kind of get away from is saying that one is better than the other because it is everyone that we needed to go through in order to get to the one that is actually most aligned with us, which is our third love. But we wouldn't know if it aligned with us unless we had been through all the others. So even within the same, say, karmic relationships, you're still having two people who are different, who are bringing different things to the table. And even that sense of, you know, the woman that I gave with the example of the astrology charts, she still, it was still a different love with each of these men different relationship outcomes, different dynamics. So I truly think that because we are different and every person that we love is a different human 
looks chemically wise, emotionally, I don't think we love in the same way twice. And it's interesting because the second that relationship ends, you're no longer the same person either. No, no, you will forever be different because every, you know, how I look at it is that every single person has, we all hold a different key and some people's keys unlock deeper parts of us. Some people's keys don't. And once you've been unlocked with somebody else's key and you've been able to see yourself in that way and love yourself differently, you're never going to be the same. But the purpose of having these relationships and even having some of them end, it's not to go back to who you were. It's to continue on the journey of becoming who you're meant to be. So true. And yet we get caught reliving the past over and over again. We get stuck in Groundhog Day instead of accepting that the chapter has ended because we're ready for the next chapter. We just don't know it yet. We don't know it yet, which is where trusting the journey, trusting ourselves come in. Exactly. So what do you think makes for a long lasting and healthy relationship? I think the biggest aspect is the relationship that we have with ourselves, because as much as we might try to, if we haven't been able to truly be authentic in every aspect of our lives, friends, family, work, if we haven't been able to communicate when it was difficult or be transparent about our needs or take accountability when we mess up, we won't be able to bring those qualities into the relationship. And this goes beyond regardless of first, second, third, soulmate, karmic, twin flame. The relationship that you have with yourself is the biggest defining factor over any relationship that you have because you could literally be with your meet again. You could meet potentially your third love twin flame. But if you haven't done that work, if you weren't ready to release parts of your past, if you weren't ready to take full accountability, if you weren't ready to let go of some of those, you know, wounded coping mechanisms or whatever it might be then you would end up self-sabotaging that amazing love. Could it come back? Maybe it'll come back. Maybe it'll come back in the form of the same person or another person, whatever it might be. But it doesn't mean, that's the thing too, is that twin flame is not foolproof. If you still get scared, if you are not ready to truly grow with it, if you're not ready to be your best self, which is going to ask you to do, even if we're not every day, you can absolutely completely self-sabotage your twin flame. You can. And it doesn't mean that it's going to be forever. It doesn't mean that it's, you know, anything like that's going to happen because if it is meant to be, it will always be meant to be. And there's nothing that two people can do to ruin that, no matter how many times they get triggered. But that's where it comes back to the relationship with yourself, because we can, we are worthy of love no matter where we are in our journey and we're able to be loved, but to truly be able to be present for that in-depth work that conscious relationships require, those hard conversations talking about needs, talking about family, talking about sex, talking about our future and actually working through problems and issues, that requires a really good relationship with yourself. Otherwise, you're going to end up thinking that you're running from your partner when in reality, you're running from the person that your relationship is requiring you to be. Wow. And do you think one person is ever to blame for the breakdown of a relationship then? No, because I think it's ultimately in the end, it will be two people because Even if in that situation, say one person self-sabotages, the other person still was present. The other person still choose to stay. The other person still chose to be open rather than possibly having better boundaries or speaking up and saying, hey, you had agreed to be this conscious partner for me, but now you're not. They'll wait for them to self-sabotage instead of calling them out on it. So I never, even in that type of situation, I don't think it's, always one-sided. I think at some point, whether it's just that aspect of choosing to stay, I think there's always two people. Mm. 
And what advice do you have for women who are in a toxic relationship and believe the abusive things that their partners say to them? Look up the term gaslighting. <laughs> That's the number one thing because we've all been there. Um, to be very gentle with yourself. It is a very slow process if you are in a toxic, unhealthy relationship or if you think you are. The biggest way to tell is if you feel like you are constantly confused. If you feel like you don't know which way is up, if you feel like you can't trust yourself, if you feel like you are literally confused by their actions and their words, that is the number one sign that you are in a relationship that is toxic, unhealthy, possibly with a narcissist, and you're being gaslit. So the number one thing is to be gentle with yourself. Start researching, look up books, look up great Instagram pages, but there's a ton. But the other thing is that usually in those toxic, unhealthy relationships, the person who is kind of portraying that is going to want to isolate you. They're going to want to get you away from your family and friends. So if you feel like you are in that situation, not only be gentle with yourself and start to reach out for whether it's a counselor or books or audio books or IG pages, but also start to reach out some girlfriends. Even if you hadn't spoken with someone in five or 10 years, reach out to them because there was a relationship there once. And the number one thing that if you're in that unhealthy relationship, you need that female support. They may not give great advice, but you still need that female support. You still need that female circle because you need to not be isolated anymore. Because even having that validation, which is actually perfect for leaving a toxic relationship of you can do so much better, you're not crazy. That's what that person leaving that relationship actually needs. And to not feel alone, to not feel like that person is their only source of affection and conversation. So true. And what about women who are too afraid to leave their soulmate or karmic partner, even though they know deep down they're not the one for them? Well, it depends on obviously where the fear is coming from. You know, if it is a physical abuse issue, which I have been there, I, I always refer women to find a local domestic abuse agency because if it is that physical aspect, it is something to address and take seriously because you never want to underestimate an unhealthy partner. If it's that aspect of being afraid of finding love or of finding someone again or whatever it may be, recognize that our fear is always in place to keep us safe. And usually how we're translated as safe is it's to keep us comfortable. It's not to help us grow. So your fear is there because it thinks that it's keeping you safe. It doesn't recognize that it's actually keeping you from living the life and having the relationship that you dream of. That is so true. Yeah. Our fear keeps us, but again, I mean, safety is translated as comfort, but it seldom is actually comfortable, which is the irony of it. (laughs) Yeah. It's so ironic. And so this podcast is all about creating the manual for the modern woman. What is one piece of advice you wish you knew earlier? Don't be afraid to sit with yourself and don't be afraid to be single. Very timely for the podcast. (laughs) It's actually one of the best gifts, especially for now. You know, in our generation, we have so much power. We have so much freedom. We have the ability to travel the world by ourselves and experience all these amazing things. Don't be afraid to work on the relationship with yourself first. It's okay. You're not being selfish. You're actually developing yourself for the relationship that you say that you want. And what is next for you, Kay? I I seriously hope you're about to tell me another book. (laughs) Please. Yeah, actually, (laughs) I'm starting to work on another book and it's actually breaking down what the astrology charts look like for soulmate, karmic and twin flame relationships. So that way, if you are, say, in a relationship and you read the first book and you're like, how do I know if I'm in a karmic relationship? There's so many free sites that are able to kind of pull up a natal chart. So if you have a natal chart, you can then look in the book and be like, okay, wait a minute. 
that does have a lot of these similarities because we're always looking for concrete evidence. And so by kind of incorporating that astrology component, it's not just looking at the astrology of how to see if your partner may be karmic or might be a narcissist, which there actually are factors that you can look at in the birth chart and see it, which is blew my mind when I realized that. But it's also looking at how can you tell that someone might be really right for you? How can you tell that you might end up working through your father wound or your mother wound with somebody? And also, how are you going to communicate together? And how is that going to affect the relationship? So that's my next book that I'm starting actually this year I've been working on. And other than that, I'm hosting um, a women's retreat all about returning to your divine feminine in Costa Rica this summer, which I'm really excited for. Costa Rica. That's going to be magical. Wow. I love it. It's one of my places when I move out of the country, because I know I will be. Um, I'm in the U.S. now. I know that I Costa Rica is one of the locations that I know I would I would consider. I have to go, but also I just can't wait to read your new book because I'm I'm not sure if you're familiar about the birthday book and the relationship book, but like I'm obsessed with them. So your book. Oh, wait, I have heard about the birthday book. Well, yeah. and that's what I love. I mean, I remember being a little girl and my mom, and I was just talking with her about this. She had these like old school, you know, this was the eighties, these old school, um, you know, astrology books. And I was little and I would just sit there and like pour over them. And now I think about it, I'm like, that was not normal behavior for an eight year old. No, definitely <laughs> but, not. But I've always had this, it's, it's almost like that aspect of, you know, we're, we're told all of these things about spirituality or religion, but I love astrology because we can't argue the planets. I mean, even if someone says they don't believe in astrology, but then you ask them to start noticing things, their life is still being affected by it. So that astrology is true, whether you believe in it or not. And I think that's what's so incredible about it and the way that it really interacts. And I'm someone who I I notice patterns. So I've basically been looking and observing and researching the patterns between astrology and relationships for the past five years. And it's absolutely incredible to be able to look at that and, you know, more than just sex, more than just kind of a lot of what the books show, but really getting into what does it actually mean? Like, how can you actually tell what kind of relationship you're going to have based on the book or based on the, uh, the, the astrology chart? I literally cannot wait for this book to come out. That is so exciting. And Kate, thank you so much for coming on the Single at 30 podcast today. It has been oh, so amazing been, chatting to you today. I was going to say, it's been so much fun. And truly talking with you, I'm like, I need to get to Australia. <laughs> I, some of my favorite people are there. So it's been amazing talking with you, truly. Yeah, I would love that. Thank you so much, Kate. Thank you, Nicole. Have a great day. Guys, thank you so much for listening to this Single at 30 episode, Why You Only Fall in Love Three Times with Kate Rose. If you like this app, please leave a review, hit follow and subscribe and make sure to share it with the amazing modern women in your life. If you have any questions, feedback or even an episode idea, DM me on Instagram at single underscore at underscore 30. Please also make sure to sign up to the private Single at 30 Facebook group to become part of the inclusive community that helps all modern women, regardless of their age or stage, successfully navigate life and love on their own terms and without fear or judgment the latest edition of the monthly manual will be dropping soon so make sure to sign up via the single 30 website as each edition includes never before seen featured guest articles and videos from inspiring modern women as well as blog and podcast content and last but not least thoughtful answers to your questions in the love and life advice column unveiled i love you all this is single 30 the manual for the modern woman that we are writing together